America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And what makes this such a great nation? Many people would say what makes this nation great is the American dream. The American dream means that you get to start over. This is a country of new life and fresh starts. And part of those fresh starts mean economic mobility. The notion that you may be born into a poor family, but you don't have to stay poor. And the fact is that in America, chances are you won't because people progress from gener generation to generation. Who says so? Uh, John Early, among many others. He's the co-author of the bestseller, The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. He is the co-author with uh, former Senator Phil Graham of that outstanding piece that I shared with you yesterday from the Wall Street Journal about the actual mobility generation to generation in American life how people who grow up in poor homes, homes with restricted opportunities, are unlikely to stay there through the generations. Uh, John Early is a mathematical economist. He's president of the consultancy Vital Few LLC and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He has also served twice as assistant commissioner at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, first of all, the, the piece you, you did in the Wall Street Journal, which I know is related directly to your book, best-selling book, The Myth of American Inequality, what is so most profoundly encouraging about this concerning the idea of American mobility, which has been pronounced uh, dead and gone, that we don't offer the same opportunities as other countries. Why are those attacks on America wrong and misguided? Well, part, part of it is when they look at the data on that specific point, they misread the data. They don't, they don't understand it and they don't explain it right. But another part of it is that some of the uh, fundamental official statistics don't count all of income. Uh, and so that they miss out on some of the big stories about uh, upward mobility as people progress in their careers and as one generation uh, uh, succeeds another because there, there's nothing stronger than the American mother to motivate children to move ahead. And in terms of uh, moving ahead, what is uh, an example of the income they don't count? Well, uh, in the... Uh, income that uh, is reported by the census bureau where which is used to measure inequality generally uh they don't count like two-thirds of uh, what are called transfer payments that's money that households receive from the government uh of course b big pieces of that are things like social security which they do count but they don't count uh much of the money that goes to equalize the income among uh, people uh, under the retirement age. For example, they don't count food stamps. They don't count uh, the child uh, 
uh, tax credits, you know, which are refundable tax credits, which means that uh, the tax credit not only offsets your tax liability, but if it's bigger than your tax liability, which it usually is, you also get cash from the Treasury. That That's a cash transfer that is not, that's not counted. So that, food stamps, uh, the free medical care that uh, people receive from Medicaid, uh, that's not counted. So about two-thirds of the money that goes to uh, lower-income households uh, uh, isn't counted, and uh, that makes it, things look a whole lot more unequal than they really are. Okay, right now, realistically, and, and again, we don't have the ability to look at the charts that you have available in your book and that you had available in the Wall Street Journal piece, but let's say someone is born into the bottom quintile, the lower 20% of income. That means uh, that the family is is ha- earning a household income of what, about $30,000, something like that, or, or less? Well, uh, their what earnings are, the ch- are considerably less than that, but their total income is considerably higher than that because uh, if we count all the income. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, but if you're born into the lower quintile, uh, what are the odds that you will continue for the rest of your life in that lowest quintile? Only about one in three. Two in three are going to move up to at least the next level of quintile, and actually uh, one in about uh, 15 or so actually move to the highest levels of income in the in the country. And uh, at, at those higher levels of income, they also don't count taxes, do they? In other words, uh, yeah, do they, they, don't pay, they don't subtract the taxes, right. So that the the gap between the highest level and the lowest level, on the lowest level, they don't count the money the government puts in your pocket, and at the highest level, they don't count the money that the government takes out of your pocket. Why do they do it that way? Well, part of it is just long history. Uh, It started back in 1947 uh, with the definitions for most of the income that uh, was transferred by the government was just in the form of, you know, a few dollars in a... uh, in a pay envelope, uh, so it was it was pure cash. Uh, but then along came the war on poverty, and so these transfer payments, such as the food stamps, such as the Medicaid, uh, you know, were not cash money that they handed directly. Although it was uh, food stamps is close to that; it's on a debit card. Uh, but they don't count it uh, because it was new. Uh, so that history, and then they just don't have not adjusted to the change in the way people get receive their transfer payments. And when the taxes come down, the taxes are a whole lot higher now than they were then, uh, but they never they never have counted the tax, subtracted the taxes. And that's, of course, about for the top uh, 40% of the population, that's about, uh, about 80, they pay about 85% of the taxes. What is, for those people who are still trapped, uh, where they are raised in poor households, and they continue to be poor for the rest of their lives. Are there certain patterns, uh, certain decisions that are common to lock people into poverty? Uh, well, there are a number of things, but the two, two of the more important things are things that, we, that uh, our government actually does to them. The first is by offering such large transfer payments, which largely means that someone, a middle-income family, which is working full-time, their total income is not, is only, is depending on how you measure it, is anywhere between zero and 11% more 
than people who don't work at all and get only government transfer payments. So that reduces the incentive to work. So among the people in the bottom quintile, in that bottom fifth you were talking about, 50 years ago, uh, about 36% of them uh, did not work, which is one reason they were there. They just didn't work. So they were therefore in the lower quintile. Today, it's 68%, nearly twice as frequently do working age adults not work today. So they choose not to work because they are given an incentive not to work by large government transfer payments. So that's one thing we do to encourage people to, in fact, continue in that bottom quintile. The other is the very poor public uh, school system that uh, is slowly people are beginning to realize we need to offer uh, school choice uh, to parents to get their children into better schools. And that that is one of the things that we do to children is we keep sending them to poor schools that are run for the benefit of the teachers' unions rather than for the benefit of the pupils. Okay, we have much more to talk about. For instance, one of the things that the Congress of the United States is going to be talking about, because that was a promise that uh, Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy made, uh, there's going to be a debate about a what's called a fair tax, a national sales tax replacing our current income tax system. We're going to speak to John Early, a former official at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and uh, now a mathematical economist and president of a consulting firm. Uh, we're going to be speaking to him about whether that fair tax is a good idea or the changes we could make to foster mobility for any people still trapped in poverty. That and more coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, when somebody usually talks about a shocking statistic, it's something having to do with bad news, threatening news, disquieting news. But one of the statistics from uh, John Early's recent piece in the Wall Street Journal indicates that 28% of children who were reared in the bottom quintile, the lowest 20% by income, had adult incomes that would still put them in the bottom childhood quintile. But 26% of kids raised at the bottom rose all the way to the childhood top quintile, which required a minimum income of uh, $111,416. This is a um, this is not a country that is frozen. It is a country where mobility, as his article in Wall Street Journal says, is alive and well. Uh, John Early is the co-author of the bestseller, The Myth of American Inequality. He's a mathematical economist who served twice as assistant commissioner at the Bureau of Labor Statistics for the U.S. government. Uh, John, what what could the the government do differently other than um, counting numbers very differently what could the government do to help those people who do get uh, trapped in poverty generationally grandparents parents children what what is a possible point to make 
our economy even more dynamic, dynamic in terms of upward mobility? Well, you know, I, I started. We started talking about that a little bit before the break, uh, and the part of uh, the biggest story is to get government to stop doing things that actually make it worse, so that the way in which the a large size and b uh, the way in which the transfer payments, such as uh, you know food stamps and uh, temporary assistance to needy families and uh, uh, income tax credits the way that those things are structured discourage people from actually working because the amount they have to work is not as small compared to the income they can get from not working. Uh, so that creates disincentive and that disincentive has approximately doubled over the last over the last 50 years. So that that's one set of things to fix. The other set of things to fix that are uh, straightforward and easy are relatively easy is to change the way in which we run our public school systems so the parents the money follows the student parents can choose and select the school that is best for their pupils rather than uh, rather than having the tax dollars go to run a school establishment which is very heavy on administration and less on learning uh, and one of the one of the main contributors to people being trapped uh, or at least having a difficult time getting out of the bottom. Still, the vast majority do get out of the bottom. That's the good news. But those that don't, the, the chief reason is their lack of good education. Uh, and that uh, we put, compare very poorly with other countries. And the amount of money spent on education in the United States is more than enough to deliver good education. And if you look across the states, for example, you see that the states that spend the most are often the ones that get the poorest outcomes because they go to pay for things other than learning. So that's a big fix that, need, that needs to happen. What about the idea, we were mentioning it before the break, of what's called a fair tax, which is a large national sales tax to replace all income taxes. Uh, how Could it be made fair, as I know people have talked about, by providing some kind of compensa compensatory payment uh, for people who earn and spend below a certain level? But then for everybody else, you get taxed on what you spend, not on what you earn. Yeah, it's one of those ideas that's theoretically uh, appealing and has many uh, pluses. Uh, on the practical side, there are, there are issues that would have to be addressed and uh, being taken care of. And the example we have as example A as to why that can be a bad idea, uh, if not done well, is, uh, is Europe or much of Europe where they have large VAT or value-added taxes, which are essentially a national sales tax. But those are in addition to their income taxes. So that what actually happens is the middle class winds up paying the big bulk of the taxes uh, because of the way that, that the tax is structured. So if we put in, and as I said, in principle, a flat sales tax uh, within uh, some sort of, uh, in effect, tax rebate for the, for the lower income groups, uh, could be made better, but you first of all, we've got the 16th Amendment in the Constitution, which would have to uh, have to go away because we don't want to keep that and a sale and a income tax. That would be the worst of both worlds, and and Europe has shown us that. Uh, and then we would need to amend that also amend the Constitution to allow for the sales tax because the Constitution allows the federal government to provide only for a what's called a capitation tax, a certain number of dollars per person. 
except for the uh, for the income tax, which was changed by the 16th Amendment. So if you took care of those things, got rid of the set in- income tax, and replaced it with a flat sales tax, something like you described, there's some, some real pluses to be had from that because what? we do right now with the income taxes, we tax people for working hard and innovating and creating a value which then creates new jobs for other people uh, because we penalize people by taxing them more when they do that. So it, that would be the plus side. But it you sounds to, like you have to design it right. It sounds like you're more open or would be more open to a flat tax on income. Um, yeah, uh, it'd be easier to implement. But uh, again, the other one, is, in principle, is a good idea. It's just that in practice, getting it actually in place and uh, avoiding some of the pitfalls, it would be very difficult. Uh, Once you talk about constitutional try. amendments, yeah, you're, you're talking about a very difficult <laughs> process. The founders made it so. Yeah. But we, um, we can move in that. We can do things to move in that direction and get better. Uh, if we can't get the full, if we can't get the full boat, we can at least make some improvements. Uh, which, like for example, if we put in uh, work requirements for people to get their uh, their transfer payments. Uh, you know, if, if you're going to get, uh, you know, food stamps, well, you should be either, you should be working. In fact, welfare reform back in the '90s uh, showed us that that works. Uh, but it was a very limited program, and, and uh, legislation since then, and, leg- and regulations since then, have largely vitiated many of those improvements. But it proves that it works to do that uh, re- uh, work requirement. John Early is the co-author of the uh, bestseller, The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. Appreciate your uh, joining us on the show. And uh, again, I commend everybody to our website where we're linked not only to John Early's book but to the great column that he wrote along with former Senator Phil Graham. There's all kinds of political news today. Uh, Donald Trump is coming back, he thinks, on not just Twitter but Facebook. What does it mean and what does he have to say? We'll talk about that and somebody uh, retiring or leaving office who really is a blessing that she is leaving for the city of Seattle. Who am I talking about? We'll get to that and more coming up on the Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. That's 1-800-955-1776. number of uh, news items, uh, some of which are actually encouraging. Uh, there, <laughs> there are new charges uh, involving uh, everyone's favorite Congress, member of Congress, uh, George Santos. Uh, today, the style section of the New York Times featured the clothing styles of uh, George Santos and uh, how, what, how he's defining a new style on the floor of the house, and that is a series of photographs of, uh, of what he chooses to wear, which uh, I guess uh, is, uh, goes along with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Remember when she wore that 
clingy gown with a tax the rich message on it to a uh, benefit for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That was another story. Uh, another story involving a local office holder, but this one perhaps the most controversial local office holder in Seattle and the most senior member of the city council. That's Shama Swant. And uh, she is leaving the city council. She will not seek re-election this year. She already had some formidable competition, people who had announced for her seat. But uh, she wrote in an opinion piece in The Stranger that uh, she is leaving the city council not because she's afraid of losing office, uh, which she should be. Uh, there's a candidate named Hollingsworth who's deeply rooted in the black community who is very likely to beat Shama Swant. She is uh, the only socialist member of the city council, official socialist. And she says she now wants to take her movement national. But as far as um, uh, the city of Seattle, there is some reason for celebration here. The um, uh, Another office holder who uh, I am not a particularly fan of has announced in uh, the, another corner of the world that she is resigning office. Uh, Jacinda Ardern, who is a something of a glamorous figure, she was a very young prime minister of New Zealand, the youngest. Uh, she had a baby. Uh, she later married the baby's father, but uh, she had a baby while she was prime minister. And during her shock announcement, uh, she said this, clip six. Today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election and that my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. The only interesting angle that you will find is that after going on six years of some big challenges, I am human. Politicians are human. We give all that we can for as long as we can, and then it's time. And for me, it's time. Okay, uh, she is going to be immediately replaced as leader of her Labour Party, uh, which is the left-leaning party in New Zealand. And a part of what she is not saying at all is that part of the reason she is leaving is because they have an election coming up and the polling shows the Conservative Party, which is called the National Party in New Zealand, way ahead, 39 to 33 percent. So she was likely to have lost anyway because some of her very severe crackdowns uh, during COVID uh, turned out not to be such a gift. Uh, she has gotten wonderful worldwide publicity for everything she's ever done. But uh, it's going to be tougher for people, it seems to me, to ignore the fact that she is leaving uh, during a time when she is under fire and unlikely to be reelected anyway. Uh, this is the conclusion of her speech, clip five. For my part, I want to finish with a simple thank you to New Zealanders for giving me this opportunity to serve and to take on what has and will always be the greatest role of my life. 
I hope in return, I leave behind a belief that you can be kind but strong, empathetic but decisive, optimistic but focused, that you can be your own kind of leader, one that knows when it's time to go. Okay, look, it is a classy move that will probably help her. Uh, there is not a, uh, a great development for somebody else who had once thought of running for public office. I think that's over. Alec Baldwin had been talking about running for governor of New York, running from U.S. senator from New York. Other movie stars uh, named Reagan or Schwarzenegger have done quite well. Uh, but uh, Alec Baldwin is uh, now charged with manslaughter in that uh, case of the tragic death of the cinematographer on the movie Rust. This is what the Santa Fe District Attorney, uh, Mary Carmack Altweiss, was explaining to CNN about the decision regarding Alec Baldwin. Clip 7. Once we read through everything and, and researched the case law and the law here in New Mexico, we realized that we believe that there was probable cause to charge uh, Alec Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed with involuntary manslaughter. And what were some of the key pieces of evidence that you used that factored into that decision? That there was such a lack of safety and safety standards on that set, um, that there were live rounds on set, they were mixed in with regular dummy rounds, nobody was checking those, or at least they weren't checking them consistently. And then they somehow got loaded into a gun, handed off to Alec Baldwin. He didn't check it. He didn't do any of the things that he was supposed to do to make sure that he was safe or that anyone around him was safe. And then he pointed the gun at Helena Hutchins and he pulled the trigger. You talk about the safety on the set. Was As part of your investigation, was there one thing that was done or one thing that was said that sealed it for you that this, this should be prosecuted? No, actually, I think it was the totality of the circumstances that this was a really fast and loose set. and. That, that nobody was doing their job. There were three people that if they had done their job that day, this tragedy wouldn't have happened. And that's David Halls, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, and Alec Baldwin. If they had just done their basic duties, this we wouldn't be standing here. Okay, uh, the uh, Baldwin is expected to be charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter and Hutchins' death. And uh, they're also bringing... Manslaughter charges against the weapons handler, whose name is Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who loaded the gun. The assistant director, David Halls, who investigators said gave the loaded revolver to Baldwin just before a rehearsal in an old wooden church at Bonanza Creek Ranch, a popular movie location near Santa Fe, reached a plea deal to accept a misdemeanor charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon. Uh, look, this is very tough because uh, Alec Baldwin has not been a particularly likable guy, been very outspoken politically, is very much uh, oriented to the progressive side of things, to the left side of things. But this is, is a very problematic charge. Uh, in other words... To talk about involuntary manslaughter, even, which is a serious charge, which almost certainly would involve uh, some uh, prison time for him because he didn't check a gun on the set where uh, apparently it, they had various other indications of live bullets being around the set. For an actor who is in the midst of rehearsal, 
to uh, be brought up on these charges together with the people who actually loaded the, the gun and put the live bullets in it. That's a very different story. Uh, meanwhile, a different story about the portrait of Muhammad. Uh, what happened there to turn around the firing of a professor who was just trying to do her job? Uh, we will get to that and more on The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. We've had uh, two extraordinary guests so far today. One more to go on the Michael Medved show. We had on Bjorn Lomborg talking about making the world better and safer uh, and putting the issue of climate change into a proper context. We also had on John Early talking about how to help allow American mobility to continue to flourish. And both of them focused on one issue, uh, which is education. Uh, education in the United States is not the best in the world. It should be. We're the richest country in the world. Uh, we have so many resources. We've been able to fix so many problems. We desperately need to fix the problem of education, and that means a change in attitudes. Now, there's a statement that's actually remarkable from Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of the 1619 Project when she was working for the New York Times. She went on MSNBC to speak about the very salient, always important topic of racial healing. But the way that she defined racial hearing, it seems to me, is very revealing about the flaws in the 1619 Project and the flaws in critical race theory generally. This is uh, what Nicole Hannah-Jones had to say. It's clip three. When I think about, about healing, I think who really needs to heal are white people. I think that the idea, you know, yes, we we have gone through a lot, we have experienced a lot of trauma, we are still being harmed, but the people who cause the harm are the people who need to do the healing, the reflection, the fixing, right? And um, really, if, if we were just left alone, we'd be healed by now. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Basically, what's the problem with that is, does any sane person or educated person deny that there was tremendous harm that was committed in the name of greed, economic greed, and racism, uh, that the people who were enslaved were victimized by all that? No, no one can deny that. But what's fascinating about it is she talks about racial hearing and she says it's on white people, the people who cause the harm need to do the fixing. The problem with that is it views black people as helpless. 
And that, that of course, is the problem with the reparations ideas, like this latest uh, attempt by the San Francisco Racism Commission to try to say that uh, what is needed uh, in, in terms of making up for past injustice are reparations of $5 million per individuals. Uh, this is uh, remarkable. And again, for someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones to talk about racial healing and racial fixing, didn't a couple of uh, white Republican presidents like Lincoln and Grant do something to fix and heal uh, the the issues of racism? Uh, wasn't uh, Lyndon Johnson, who actually got the Civil Rights Bill passed and was given credit for that by Dr. King himself, uh, didn't uh, a lot of these changes in the name of racial healing include white people? Not all white people, unfortunately but a predominant majority in this country, which is one of the reasons we changed. The, um, the other educational issue involves this incredible story out of Hamline University in uh, Minnesota. And Hamline University officials, the New York Times reports, made an about-face this week in uh, the institution's treatment of a lecturer who showed an image of the Prophet Muhammad in an art history class, walking back one of their most controversial statements that showing the image was Islamophobic. They also said that respect for Muslim students should not have superseded uh, academic freedom. University officials changed their stance after the lecturer, who lost her teaching job, sued the small Minnesota school for religious discrimination and defamation. Here is uh, what happened. That um, the controversy began in October when a professor named Erica Lopez Prater, an adjunct professor, warned students multiple times before showing a reverential image of the holy figure of Muhammad that was created by devout 14th century Muslims. And you may think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't they outlaw images of Muhammad? Some branches of Islam do. But this is why even the national branch of uh, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, said you can't fire somebody because she shows an actual 14th century image that was created by very devout Muslims to make the prophet look good. It wasn't to make the prophet look bad. What's homo, uh, Islamophobic about it? Uh, many Muslims believe they are prohibited from viewing virtual representations of Muhammad, but historians of Islamic art said that the images of the prophet Muhammad are regularly shown in art history classrooms without incident. And uh, the, the idea of without incident, when they made a movie uh, called uh, About Muhammad. And how do you make a movie about Muhammad when you're not allowed to show him? And the movie was made by Muslims. Mustafa Akkad, uh, who was actually 
uh, eventually killed in a terrorist bombing, but he was a, uh, a, a, a Muslim who was seriously committed, and he created this whole movie by showing a subjective viewpoint of Mohammed. In other words, I've, I've seen the film, and very few people have, because there were riots all over the world. There was an occupation. There was a radical Muslim group. This is back in the 1970s that occupied the B'nai B'rith building as if Jewish people had something to do with this movie and Jews were not involved with it at all. They had Anthony Quinn was in the film playing Muhammad's uncle Hamza. Uh, but whenever you saw Muhammad, you saw from his point of view and then people repeated stuff so you wouldn't have to hear Muhammad's voice. Oh, uh, Muhammad, you're saying we should go to Medina now? That's a good idea. And then you see the camera nodding yes. Uh, with Mo it's, it's a strange film. But it caused riots and death. In any event, in Hamline University, uh, Aram uh, Wadatala, an observant Muslim student, complained to administrators. Dr. Lopez Prater was told that she would no longer be teaching uh, an art history course in the spring. An email to students and faculty from David Everett, a senior administrator, said the instructor's actions were clearly Islamophobic. The university's president co-signed a statement saying that respect for the Muslim students in the online class should have superseded academic freedom. In any event, she sued, and she sued because of damages to her career, to her reputation, because once you've been labeled Islamophobic, I mean, that's a, a very, very serious problem, isn't it? It certainly would be. Uh, Ms. Wadatala has praised Hamline, which is in St. Paul, for taking her concerns as a Muslim student seriously. Uh, she could not be immediately reached for comment about the university's latest reversal and their statement. The uh, lawsuit in Minnesota District Court states that Hamline's actions have caused Dr. Lopez Prater the loss of income from her adjunct position, emotional distress, and damage to her professional reputation and job prospects. What's encouraging about this is the actions of care of the Council on American Islamic Relations. They uh, issued a statement that said, although we strongly discourage showing visual depictions of the prophet, the group said in a statement, professors who analyze ancient paintings for an academic purpose are not the same as Islamophobes who show such images to cause offense. Uh, that, uh, it seems to me, is encouraging. What is not encouraging is that today is the day when uh, we hit the debt ceiling. And unless something is done, and it has to be done by the Republicans who control the House of Representatives to deal with this debt ceiling crisis, we may have an economic catastrophe. We'll speak to a former top congressional aide about the tough choice facing Republicans in the House in this greatest nation on God's green earth.